0: A thousand miles up the Nile, section 63. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org A thousand miles up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, chapter 21: Thebes, Part Three. The external decorations of the two lodges are of a special interest. The lower subjects are historical those upon the upper stories are domestic or symbolical and are among the most celebrated of egyptian bas-reliefs they have long been supposed to represent rameses the third in his harem entertained and waited upon by female slaves in one group the king distinguished always by his cartouches sits at ease in a kind of folding chair his helmet on his head his sandaled feet upon a footstool as one returned and resting after battle. In his left hand he holds a round object like a fruit. With the right he chucks under the chin an ear-ringed and necklace damsel who presents a lotus blossom at his nose. In another much-mutilated subject they are represented playing a game at drafts. This famous subject, which can only be seen when the light strikes sideways, would scarcely be intelligible save for the help one derives from the cuts in Wilkinson and the plates in Rosalini. It is not that the sculptures are effaced, but that the great blocks which bore them are gone from their places, having probably been hurled down bodily upon the heads of the enemy during a certain siege of which the ruins bear evident traces. OF THE LADY THERE REMAINS LITTLE BESIDE ONE ARM AND THE HAND THAT HOLDS THE PAWN. THE TABLE HAS DISAPPEARED. THE KING HAS LOST HIS LEGS. IT HAPPENS, HOWEVER, THOUGH THE TABLE IS MISSING, THAT THE BLOCK NEXT ABOVE IT CONTAINS THE PAWN'S, WHICH CAN STILL BE DISCERNED FROM BELOW BY THE HELP OF A GLASS. Rosalini MENTIONS THREE OR FOUR MORE SUBJECTS OF A SIMILAR CHARACTER, INCLUDING A SECOND GROUP OF DRAFT PLAYERS, ALL VISIBLE IN HIS TIME. The writer, however, looked for them in vain. These tableaux are supposed to illustrate the home life of Rameses Third, and to confirm the domestic character of the pavilion. Even the scarab-selling Arabs that haunt the ruins, even the donkey-boys of Luxor, call it the harem of the sultan. Modern science, however, threatens to dispel one, at least, of these pleasant fantasies. THE KING, IT SEEMS, UNDER THE NAME OF ROMPSONITUS, IS THE HERO OF A VERY ANCIENT LEGEND RELATED BY HERODOTUS. WHILE HE YET LIVED, RUNS THE STORY, HE DESCENDED INTO HADES, AND THERE PLAYED A GAME AT draughts WITH THE GODDESS DEMETER, FROM WHOM HE WON A GOLDEN NAPKIN, IN MEMORY OF WHICH ADVENTURE, AND OF HIS RETURN TO EARTH, THE EGYPTIANS, SAYS HERODOTUS, INSTITUTED A FESTIVAL WHICH THEY CELEBRATED IN MY DAY." In another version, as told by Plutarch, Isis is substituted for Demeter. Viewing these tales by the light of a certain passage of the ritual, in which the happy dead is promised power to transform himself at will, to play at draughts, to repose in a pavilion, Dr. Birch has suggested that the whole of this scene may be of a memorial character, and represent an incident in the land of shades. Below these harem groups come colossal bas-reliefs of a religious and military character. The king, as usual, smites his prisoners in presence of the gods. A slender and spirited figure, in act to slay, the fiery hero strides across the wall, like Baal descended from the heights of heaven. His limbs are endued with the force of victory. With his right hand he seizes the multitudes, his left reaches like an arrow after those who fly before him, his sword is sharp as that of his father mentu below these great groups run friezes sculptured with kneeling figures of vanquished chiefs among whom are libyan sicilian sardinian and etruscan leaders every head in these friezes is a portrait the libyan is beardless his lips are thin his nose is hooked his forehead retreats he wears a close-fitting cap with a pendant hanging in front of the ear The features of the Sardinian chief are no less Asiatic. He wears the usual Sardinian helmet, surmounted by a ball and two spikes. The profile of the Sicilian closely resembles that of the Sardinian. He wears a head-dress like the modern Persian cap. As ethnological types, these heads are extremely valuable. Colonists not long since departed from the western coast of Asia Minor these early European settlers are seen with the Asiatic stamp of features, a stamp which now has entirely disappeared. Other European nations are depicted elsewhere in these Medinet-Habu sculptures. Pelasgians from the Greek isles, Oscans, perhaps from Pompeii, Donians from the districts between Tarentum and Brundusium, figure here each in their national costume. Of these the Pelasgian alone resembles the modern European. On the left wall of the pavilion gateway, going up towards the temple, there is a large bas-relief of Rameses Third leading a string of captives into the presence of Amen ra Among these, the sculptures being in a high state of preservation, there are a number of Pelasgians, some of whom have features of the classical Greek type, and are strikingly handsome." The pelasgic headdress resembles our old infantry shako, and some of the men wear disc-shaped amulets pierced with a hole in the centre, through which is passed the chain that suspends it round the neck. Leaving to the left a fine sitting statue of Khons in green basalt, and to the right his prostrate fellow, we pass under the gateway, cross a space of desolate crude brick mounds, and see before us the ruins of the first pylon of the great temple of Khem once past the threshold of this pylon we enter upon a succession of magnificent courtyards the hieroglyphs here are on a colossal scale and are cut deeper than any others in egypt they are also coloured with a more subtle eye to effect struck by the unusual splendour of some of the blues and by a peculiar look of scintillation which they assumed in certain lights I examined them particularly, and found that the effect had been produced by very subtle shades of gradation, in what appeared at first sight to be simple flat tints. In some of the reeds, for instance, the ground color begins at the top of the leaf in pure cobalt, and passes imperceptibly down to a tint that is almost emerald green at the bottom." The inner walls of this great courtyard and the outer face of the northeast wall are covered with sculptures outlined, so to say, in intaglio and relieved in the hollow, so that the forms, though rounded, remain level with the general surface in these tableaux. The old world lives again, Rameses the Third, his sons and nobles, his armies, his foes, play once more the brief drama of life and death. Great battles are fought great victories are won, the slain are counted, the captured drag their chains behind the victor's chariot, the king triumphs, is crowned, and sacrifices to the gods. Elsewhere more wars, more slaughter. There is revolt in Libya, there are raids on the Asiatic border, there are invaders coming in ships from the islands of the great sea. The royal standard is raised, troops assemble, arms are distributed." Again the king goes forth in his might, followed by the flower of Egyptian chivalry. His horsemen are heroes, his foot-soldiers are as lions that roar in the mountains. The king himself flames like Mentu in his hour of wrath. He falls upon the foe with the swiftness of a meteor. Here, crowded in rude bullock-trucks, they seek safety in flight. Yonder their galleys are sunk their warriors are slain, drowned, captured, scathed, as it were, in a devouring fire. Never again will they sow seed or reap harvest on the fair face of the earth. Behold, says the Pharaoh, behold, I have taken their frontiers for my frontiers. I have devastated their towns, burned their crops, trampled their people under foot. Rejoice, O Egypt, exalt thy voice to the heavens, for behold, I reign over all the lands of the Barbarians. I, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Rameses Third. Such, linked to each by a running commentary of text, are the illustrations. The story is written elsewhere. Elaborately hieroglyphed in upwards of seventy closely packed columns, it covers the whole eastern front of the great north tower of the second propylon. This propylon divides the Osiride and Hypothral courts, so that the inscription faces those entering the temple and precedes the tableaux. Not even the poem of Pentar is more picturesque, not even the psalms of David are more fervid, than the style of this great chronicle. The writer pitched her tent in the doorway of the first propylon, and thence sketched the northwest corner of the courtyard, including the tower with the inscription and the Osiride colossi. The accompanying illustration faithfully reproduces that sketch. The roof of the colonnade to the right is cumbered with crude brick ruins of medieval date. The hieroglyphs, sculptured along the architrave and down the sides of the pillars, are still bright with color. The colossi are all the worse for three thousand years of ill usage. Through the sculpture doorway opposite, one looks across the hypothal court, and catches a glimpse of the ruined hall of pillars beyond. While the writer was at work in the shade of the first pylon, an Arab story-teller took possession of that opposite doorway and entertained the donkey-boys and sailors. Well paid, with a little tobacco and a few copper piastres, he went on for hours, his shrill chant rising every now and then to a quavering scream. He was a wizened, grizzled old fellow, miserably poor and tattered, but he had the Arabian Nights and hundreds of other tales by heart. Mariette was of the opinion that the temple of Medinet-Habu, erected as it is on the side of the great Theban necropolis, is, like the Ramesseum, a funerary monument erected by Rameses Third in his own lifetime to his own memory. These battered colossi represent the king in the character of Osiris, and are, in fact, on a huge scale precisely what the ordinary funerary statuettes are upon a small scale. They would be out of place in any but a monumental edifice, and they alone suffice to determine the character of the building. And such, no doubt, was the character of the Amenopheum, of the little temple called Deir el-Medinet, of the temple of Queen Hatshepsu, known as Deir el-Bahari, of the temple of Gurna, of almost every important structure erected upon this side of the river. Of the Amenophium there remain only a few sculptured blocks, a few confused foundations, and, last representatives of an avenue of statues of various sizes, the famous Colossi of the plain. The temple of Deir el-Bahari, built in terraces up the mountainside, and approached once upon a time by a magnificent avenue of sphinxes, the course of which is yet visible, would probably be, if less ruined, the most interesting temple on the western side of the river. The monumental intention of this building is shown by its dedication to Hathor, the Lady of Amenti, and by the fact that the tomb of Queen Hatshepsu was identified by Rhine some twenty-five years ago as one of the excavated sepulchres in the cliff-side, close to where the temple ends by abutting against the rock." As for the temple of Gurna, it is, at least in part, as distinctly a memorial edifice as the Medici chapel at Florence, or the Superga at Turin. It was begun by Seti I, in memory of his father, Rameses I, the founder of the nineteenth dynasty. Seti, however, died before the work was completed. Hereupon Rameses II, his son and successor, extended the general plan, finished the part dedicated to his grandfather, and added sculptures to the memory of Seti I. Later still, Meneptha, the son and successor of Rameses II, left his cartouches upon one of the doorways. The whole building, in short, is a family monument, and contains a family portrait gallery. Here all the personages whose names figure in the shrines of the Ramessides at Silcilus are depicted in their proper persons in one tableau rameses i defunct deified swathed enshrined and crowned like osiris is worshipped by seti i behind seti stands his queen tua the mother of rameses the second elsewhere seti i being now dead is deified and worshipped by rameses the second who pours a libation to his father's statue through all these handsome heads there runs a striking family likeness all more or less partake of that Dante-esque type which characterizes the portraits of Rameses II in his youth. The features of Rameses I and Seti I are somewhat pinched and stern, like the Dante of elder days. The delicate profile of Queen Tua, which is curiously like some portraits of Queen Elizabeth, is perhaps too angular to be altogether pleasing. But in the well-known face of Rameses II, these harsher details vanish, and the beauty of the race culminates. The artists of Egyptian Renaissance, always great in profile portraiture, are nowhere seen to better advantage than in this interesting series. Adjoining what may be called the monumental part of the building, we find a number of halls and chambers, the uses of which are unknown. Most writers assume that they were the private apartments of the king. Some go so far as to give the name of temple palaces to all these great funerary structures. It is, however, far more probable that these western temples were erected in conjunction, though not in direct communication, with the royal tombs in the adjacent valley of Bab el-Malek. Now every Egyptian tomb of importance has its outer chamber of votive oratory, the walls of which are covered with paintings descriptive in some instances of the occupations of the deceased upon earth and in others of the adventures of his soul after death here at stated seasons the survivors repaired with offerings no priest it would seem of necessity officiated at these little services a whole family would come bringing the first-fruits of their garden the best of their poultry cakes of homemade bread bouquets of lotus-blossoms with their own hands, they piled the altar, and the eldest son, as representative of the rest, burned the incense and poured the libations. It is a scene constantly reproduced upon monuments of every epoch. These votive oratories, however, are wholly absent in the Valley of Bab el-Malek. The royal tombs consist of only tunneled passages and sepulchre vaults, the entrances to which were closed forever as soon as the sarcophagus was occupied. Hence it may be concluded that each memorial temple played to the tomb of its tutelary saint and sovereign, that part which is played by the external oratory attached to the tomb of a private individual. Nor must it be forgotten that as early as the time of the Pyramid Kings there was a votive chapel attached to every pyramid, the remains of which are traceable in almost every instance, on the east side. There were also priests of the pyramids, as we learn from innumerable funerary inscriptions. An oratory on so grand a scale would imply an elaborate ceremonial. A dead and deified king would doubtless have his train of priests, his daily liturgies, his processions and sacrifices. All this again implies additional accommodation, and accounts, I venture to think, for any number of extra halls and chambers. Such sculptures, as yet remain on the walls of these ruined apartments, are, in fact, wholly funereal and sacrificial in character. It is also to be remembered that we have here a temple dedicated to two kings, and served most likely by a twofold college of priests. The wall sculptures at Gurna are extremely beautiful, especially those erected by Seti I. WHERE IT HAS BEEN ACCIDENTALLY PRESERVED, THE SURFACE IS AS SMOOTH, THE EXECUTION AS BRILLIANT, AS THE FINEST MEDIEVAL IVORY-CARVING. BEHIND A BROKEN COLUMN, FOR INSTANCE, THAT LEANS AGAINST THE SOUTH WALL WEST OF THE SANCTUARY, ONE MAY SEE, BY PEEPING THIS WAY AND THAT, THE RAM'S HEAD PROW OF A SACRED BOAT, QUITE UNHARMED AND OF SURPASSING DELICACY. THE MODELLING OF THE RAM'S HEAD IS SIMPLY FAULTLESS. It would indeed be scarcely too much to say that this one fragment, if all the rest had perished, would alone place the decorative sculpture of ancient Egypt in a rank second only to that of Greece. The temple of Gurna, northernmost of the Theban group, stands at the mouth of that famous valley called by the Arabs Bab el-Malik, and by travellers the valley of the tombs of the kings. This valley may be described as a bifurcated ravine, ending in two cul-de-sacs, and hemmed in on all sides by limestone precipices. It winds round behind the cliffs which face Luxor and Karnak, and runs almost parallel with the Nile. This range of cliffs is perforated on both sides with tombs. The priests and nobles of many dynasties were buried terrace above terrace on the side next the river. Back to back with them, in the silent and secret valley beyond, slept the kings in their everlasting sepulchres End of section sixty three